1: make yourself at home i want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support tonight's special guest is a veteran of this program the last time he was on we were disconnected 24 times while discussing secrets of anti-gravity propulsion and other interesting information that maybe some didn't want us to disclose if you haven't listened to my first interview with paul aviolette go to the past shows section And you will find it in november 2009 it is a true classic and tonight we will literally be all over the universe since i don't get a chance to talk to paul that often we'll discuss his research past and present and how to mitigate the external threats the planet may be facing in the not too distant future dr paul aviolette will be with us shortly to listen to tonight's full interview become a test member just go to our website, verytestradio.com, click on the subscribe button, and receive instant access. Why wait? For only $7.95 per month, you can listen to every program, audio, and video, hundreds of hours in CD audio quality, and take Veritest with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And don't forget to visit the Veritest store, where you can purchase many of our products, including MMS. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website, veritasradio.com, and also join me on Facebook. According to Dr. Paul LaViolette, the story of Atlantis is an allegorical story describing the creation of matter. Did you know there is now evidence showing that there is no black hole at the center of our galaxy? Did you know that the most recent Pleistocene mass extinction may have had a solar cause? Did you know that pulsars are distributed in the sky in a non-random fashion, often marking key galactic locations, and that their signals are of intelligent origin? These extraterrestrial beacons are warning us about a past galactic core explosion disaster that could recur in the near future. For this and much more, Dr. Paul Aviolette is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
0: This is Santos Bonacci, and you are listening to Veritas Radio.
1: Dr. Paul A. Laviolette is author of Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, Subquantum Kinetics, Earth Under Fire, Genesis of the Cosmos, Decoding the Message of the Pulsars, Galactic Superwaves and Their Impact on the Earth, and is editor of A System's View of Man. He has also published many original papers in physics, astronomy, climatology, systems theory, and psychology. He received his BA in physics from Johns Hopkins, his MBA from the University of Chicago, and PhD from Portland State University, and is currently president of the Starburst Foundation. His background proves him to be a Renaissance man, a man for all seasons. His foundation is strongly scientific, his creative mind seeks the big answers the big questions. Dr. Laviolette is no stranger to this program. And for those of you who are listening to Paul Laviolette for the first time here, I highly suggest you listen to our first interview, recorded in November 2009, in which we were disconnected 24 times, as we discuss secrets of anti-gravity propulsion and other interesting information. And directly from Athens, Greece, where it's almost midnight, I'm honored welcome Dr. Paul Laviolet back to Veritas. Hello and Calispera, Paul. Welcome back to Mm -hmm. Veritas. How are you?
2: Oh, fine. Glad to be here,
1: Mel. It's a great pleasure for me to have you back, uh, Paul. It's been almost two years from that classic interview we did, and I certainly hope that we don't have any interruptions as we had last time. But (laughs) since I'm only privileged to talk to you every few years, I'll be all over the place, all over the galaxy and beyond, literally. But before we start, Paul, and I know this is not an area you discuss too much, but you also have an MBA and you're living in Greece right now. Give us a quick perspective. Uh, We hear a lot from the media, but you're there. Tell us what is life in Greece with all this economic turmoil right now for the average person and what do you see happening?
2: well um you know there are wages even before the uh, this crisis hit their wages were already low by european standards like the average person would get uh, maybe a thousand dollars a month for salary <clears throat> and now with the austerity measures their salaries are, are being cut uh bonus is was removed that they would get around christmas time uh the sales tax uh, doubled um and they're talking about putting property taxes, um, the economy has sort of shrunk as a result that people uh, don't have as much money to spend and so they don't buy as many things. Um, just on uh, the street that I live on, like half the shops have closed. Oh. Um, and this is typical of many places in Athens. Um, They've sort of depended as their main uh, uh, source of income on tourism. And with the recession, uh, well, fortunately, that's been holding up. Um, actually, the uh, the crisis in Africa helped their tourism because people that would have gone to uh, to North Africa decided to, to visit Greece instead. Um, so... Uh, The thing is that they don't have too much in the way of manufacturing. They have aluminum industry, and uh, uh, they have some uh, resources they export. Um, But uh, it's mainly agriculture, uh, like uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, honey, things like this. Um, The the thing is... uh, I, I got my degree at uh, University of Chicago. And one thing about the Chicago School of Economics theory is uh, on money supply. If you shrink money supply, um, you're going to shrink the economy. Of course. And uh, this is basically uh, proving that Chicago theory is right. You know, it's sort of like an experiment on Greece. Um, and sure enough, by... Uh, uh, imposing these restrictions um, to pay off their debt, it's sort of like this major outflow of money for paying the debt, uh, the result is the economy has shrunk. And uh, the problem is, can they generate enough money to um, counter their expenses, you know? And uh, so they're sort of like in a double bind. Um, now you start here instead of... Uh, debt, you hear the word bankruptcy <laughs> very frequently in the news. Um, so it's, you know, the question is how will Europe react to this? Are they willing to be a little more lenient in Greece's case? Whereas, like Italy and Spain have uh, major industries. <laughs> uh, somebody's calling me. <laughs> so just, um, yeah, and so uh, it's like I was saying in this interview um, um I guess i hung up okay um so uh this is the problem um and um I personally i think that one solution would be for them to start using free energy here. <laughs> you
1: <know>, of course <laughs> and they have the right person right there in greece but i really don't think greece can its that just like many other countries and as you say italy and spain may have some hope I really don't see how Greece can do it. Uh, default may be the only option, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, yeah, could be.
1: But anyway, I, uh, I'm i so glad to have you here because there's a lot in the news, especially in the world of subcontinent kinetics that we'll, we'll be discussing. But I thought about you last week, uh, Paul. We saw here in the States how millions of people in Southern California, Arizona, and, and even Mexico lost uh, electricity. Apparently one one utility company employee created the, the problem. But I couldn't help but think of you when this mm-hmm. happened. In a macro way. This could also happen at a larger scale via a superwave or even a massive solar flare. Can you paint a scenario of what this could do to a nation short, short and long term?
2: Yeah, well, like they've done a study about what would happen if there was a uh, solar flare similar to what we had 150 years ago in 1859. It's called the Carrington Event. Um, If that sort of that's that was the largest solar proton event to hit hit us in modern times. And now that was before the present technology of power distribution systems that we have. Um, so what they say is if that now occurred today, um, what would happen is uh, you get these huge voltage surges on the power lines that are like trans uh, transcontinental uh, that, you know, would go for thousands of miles of wire um, because what happens <coughs> uh, when the uh, solar protons hit the uh, magnetic fields, they cause uh, the magnetic field of the Earth to move, and that generates huge currents uh, in, the, in the power lines, and this would basically burn out uh, step-down transformers. And um, the problem is they don't have enough uh, transformers on hand to replace them. Uh, And they need power to manufacture new transformers. So uh, some of the projections say that you could be out of power for as much as 5 to 10 years, uh, which means basically uh, horses uh, would go up in price, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) be in great demand. Uh, So if you have a horse farm, (laughs) you'd be in good shape. uh, the other problem is that our food distribution depends yes. on power. Uh, gas pumps don't work without power. Um, uh, the ph- pharmaceutical industry would grind to a halt uh, since it needs power to make uh, the pills that we use. So uh, it, it uh, would have a major impact uh, for, to be uh, to say the least. Um, the 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 answer would be to um, get away from the major power distribution systems that we use, um, closer to alternative energy, where each house generates their own power, or each factory generates its own power.
1: When we hear the words uh, galactic superwave, uh, we of course think of you. And this happened before in 1859. Is there a record of? This happened even before that. I guess what I'm asking is number two questions. Number one, preparing for such an event would it be futile, or are there practical ways to mitigate this?
2: Uh, well, uh, if we had enough warning when it was happening, uh, we could like put out a warning to people. But um, I'm a little doubtful. I think it will happen in a sudden way sort of take us by surprise. Um, <clears throat> the super wave travels at, uh, very close to the speed of light and super wave being the cosmic these cosmic rays that are, would be coming towards us. Uh, so when it arrives, that's when you know it's here. It's not like you see it coming. Um, <clears throat> and now, there was a recent uh, thing in the news where they saw a Black hole in the distant galaxy, what they believe is black hole, and I have a different view on that. um, That it suddenly uh, turned on, whereas before it was uh, the galaxy was in a normal state. Suddenly, it it basically looked like you had a quasar at the core of the galaxy, Uh, and they were saying that, theorizing that maybe the, the core of the galaxy swallowed a star. I believe that what really happened is that this is an example of a galaxy going into the quasar state, uh, which is normal for galaxies. Uh, It's just that we hadn't caught one uh, going into from quiescent to active. This was the first time we saw one. And what we found was that it turned on just in a matter of minutes, uh, reaching maximum intensity. So that's how fast that this could happen. And uh, uh, if you were outdoors, you you know, you might get a substantial radiation dose um, as to how much, you know, this is speculative uh, because we haven't gone through any of these in recent times. (laughs) So we we don't have much of a database. uh.
1: So, So what you mentioned about the galaxy going into quasar state, what would happen to our galaxy if that would, were to happen here?
2: Well, a quasar state would be usually for—we uh, haven't seen this type of intensity in the past in our galaxy, looking at the, the geologic record. Um, I, I believe that the core of our galaxy goes into what would be better described as ciphered state, which is thousand times less intense. Uh, it's just that the core of our galaxy doesn't generate the kind of real major outbursts that you see in some of these other very large galaxies. Um, but still, even so, um, it would be uh, quite substantial. It, w- it w- might not be en- enough to uh, kill you uh, in terms of radiation dose. Um, it-, it could give you uh, it would be enough to raise the mutation rate if you were exposed outdoors. Um, uh, But I I think that the things that are really dangerous would be coming from the sun, and there's a link between these core explosions and uh, solar activity. Um, And the the chain of reasoning as to what happens is that the... uh, the superwave cosmic rays end up pushing cosmic dust into the solar system that normally is kept out by the solar wind. And this dust uh, then uh, is, um, sort of shrouds the sun and ends up falling into the sun, and that aggravates the sun. So if that keeps up for decades and decades, eventually uh, this, the sun becomes more and more active and turns into more or less of a Tauri star, which is a, a star that's continually flaring, and and then th- that it can become dangerous. Um, and I believe that's what happened at the end of the Ice Age. Uh, that the sun went into this activated state. But anyway, uh, you were asking about what you can do to prepare. Um, well, uh, you know, there's talk about... Uh, secret uh, underground (laughs) Uh, fallout shelters that have been built by the government. Um, uh, In fact, uh, at Denver Airport, they say there's underground facilities, perhaps to house the US government if there was some major catastrophe. Um, So, and there's also groups, I know of some groups that are building uh, their own fallout shelters, uh, thinking that something might happen in 2012 which, uh, you know, I believe there's a finite chance. Uh, I can't say for sure. Um, I, I usually say that you know, there's like a 90% chance that we'll get some sort of super wave in the next four centuries. Um, so it could arrive tomorrow or it could happen uh, 30 years from now. Well, that, that was
1: the next part of my question. In your opinion, what would mm-hmm. represent the statistically most significant window, range of years that is, for the next galactic center energy burst based upon the observed historical data?
2: Yeah, uh, well, like I said, uh, I, I would say very strong chance in the next 400 years that we're going to have one. Um, but not knowing in advance, uh, you know, there uh, then there's the crop circles. Uh, People talk about them sending messages to us uh, showing uh, high ratios.
1: Yeah, what's your take on that, by the way?
2: Um, Well, it it seems that uh, whoever's designing these, uh, forming them, um, has quite a sophisticated knowledge of mathematics. Um, I sort of think it's difficult to pass them off as just uh, black projects engineers playing uh, with high-tech uh, beam weapons, um, <clears throat> I think uh, you know could involve extraterrestrial intelligence uh, trying to send us messages. Uh, that's something to consider. Um, there's one particular crop circle um, which I have studied. Uh, I think it's the Ababuri circle, the one that had the uh, depiction of the solar system as the planets would be in 2012. Yes, yes. And the
1: impressive one.
2: And you find that the Pluto planet is off from where it should be. If that was to be 2012, it's not where it should be. And you then look uh, where, wh- how much, how many years off is it in its orbit? And uh, it turns out that it would be in that position on around 2035. So it's almost like they're trying to show us this future date. In fact, they they have a little elliptical diagram off to the side, uh, divided in 11 parts, showing where if you took that as Pluto's orbit and you divide that in 11 parts, that one segment would be, be equal to about that difference in time from 2012 to 2035. So... I mean, there's no way to prove it, but um, you know, why are they trying to show us this future date? Um, so that's uh, you know something to think about. Um, it's also encoded in the pulsar message that uh, I discuss in my book, Decoding the Message of the Pulsars. Uh, there's the three main pulsars that are very significant: is the Vela pulsar, the Crab pulsar and another one of Volpecular Constellation, and it turns out their, their periods very closely match the Fibonacci series, which is... Ha.
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just before we started the show, I added a topic that I wanted to discuss with you about Fibonacci, so I'm so glad you're mentioning it. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, uh, so their periods uh, very closely match that, but the Crab Pulsar period is uh, not quite on target. And, but its period is changing over time as its, um, its period is increasing, um, as time goes on. So you find when would the period be such that it would be exactly the, pi, the phi ratio. And you come to a, a, a date which is very close to that 2035 date, 20, 2036, 2037, I forget now the exact uh, number. Uh, I I discuss it on the etheric.com website. Um, But uh, it's interesting that you come up with a similar day.
1: So you think Mm -hmm. that, uh, because I think of crop circles, and I try to find logic to it, of course, as a human being. And the majority of the crop circles are uh, being performed in in, uh, the UK. Any idea as to why they may be choosing that area? Uh, We have plenty of fertile ground here in the United States and other places around the world, but that area of England seems to be the the, the epicenter. Why do you think? I
2: uh, really have no idea why. I, don't really, I can't really say.
1: That's fine. But speaking of the Fibonacci uh, numbers uh, and nature, we can see them in spiral galaxies all the way to even pine cones, and even hmm. DNA shows Fibonacci spiral structures, and every human has two hands. Each one of these has five fingers. Each finger has three parts, which are separated by two knuckles. All of these sound uh, numbers feed into the sequence, but could this be coincidence or is there more to it?
2: Well, um, <clears throat> like the spiral, for example. Uh, right. The Archimedes spiral you see in the uh, shells, so which uh, has this Fibonacci series. Uh, <clears throat> it uh, comes from the. It's a Related to growth and to not not having been prepared on the topic in advance.
1: That's uh, okay. It's
2: uh, something. It's it, it, you, I, I would suggest people to do a quick Google search, and it explains how uh, uh, if you add to the existing uh, uh, spiral a certain amount, you you will naturally generate this. It's it's something that nature. Uh, generates. uh so um, it's um, it's also a characteristic of, of numbers, uh, which Pythagoras was uh, very interested in these types of things.
1: Well, even, I don't know if you saw uh, a few weeks ago a thirteen year old who uses Fibonacci sequence for solar power breakthrough. I don't know if, have you have you seen that that piece of news? Uh, no, I have. This is a, a young man, a 13-year-old who wanted to explore solar power and he found a tree and he re- realized that the way the tree branches grow is exactly a Fibonacci sequence. And He positioned, mm. positioned the solar cells that way and he got about 50% more energy than any other solar power uh, uh, device being placed in trees. So, you know, it's everywhere. Mm.
2: It's interesting. Hmm.
1: But uh, speaking of some of the articles that you've written lately, there's a few that cut my attention. One, about the evidence that the Pleistocene mass extinction may have had a solar cause. Explain that.
2: Um, yeah, well, um, I was sort of biased to... Thinking in this terms from studying ancient myths, um, in my book *Earth Under Fire*, I describe several myths where they talk about the burning of the earth. Um, I've put the book down somewhere here. Here it is. Uh, like there's this one myth um, where, let's see, it's from. Well, um, yeah with South America, where they talk about this fellow holding himself up in a cave because he knew that uh, this was going to happen. Um, The the sun was burning the the surface of the earth and on two occasions, he held a stick out the mouth of the cave and it would come back charred. So uh, finally, the third time, it was things were cool enough that it didn't char the sticks. So he stayed in another four days and before he ventured out. And uh, when he went out he saw everything, all the forests were ash, ashes and the rivers and springs had boiled away. Um, So you find these myths all over the world. um, And um, uh, either legends or myths talking in terms of animals like uh, one is about a hare that uh, got burned by the sun because uh, the sun came too close to the earth. And to take revenge, he uh, uh, took aim at the sun with his uh, bow and arrow. And one of his arrows uh, hit the sun right in, in the middle. And <laughs> it caused the sun to fragment into a thousand pieces, which created a conflagration on the earth. Um and uh, very often, they talk about a flood uh, uh, quenching the conflagration, um, which um, it makes sense because uh, if this happened during the Ice Age, um, the ice sheets would have melted, and you would have gotten this outpouring of glacial meltwater surging across the continents. Um, anyway, with this background, I was... Um, studying, in particular, the beginning of the Younger Dryas, which is a period around 12,900 years ago, uh, 13,000 years ago, approximately. The climate that was, um, had warmed up, this was during the ice age, but the climate had warmed up uh, to present-day temperatures. But at the beginning of the Younger Dreas things uh, began cooling again. Uh, and within 200 years, it went back to ice age temperatures. And it was right around that time that you had the um, mass extinction occurring where all these um, large animals like mastodons, mammoths, uh, ground sloths, um, 95% of the these large animals in the United States, for example, became extinct at that time. Uh, not all necessarily at, at the ending I, it's, uh, some paleontologists say that this stretched out over a few thousand years but you did have this cutoff off where uh, suddenly the extinction terminated and you had a large number of species right at that <clears throat> termination boundary uh, cease to exist and uh, there have been various theories of what caused this some people say that it was uh, humans that were hunting them. Uh, this is the overkill hypothesis.
1: I was going to say, do you buy that one?
2: No. Uh, you, you see examples of um, mammoth remains, for example, um, in some places where there's no sign of campfires. Uh, so no indication that there was any predation. Um, you find there's like uh, 10 species of birds that became extinct, uh, which doesn't make sense that humans were hunting birds Um, and it wasn't just in North America you find that extinction happened in Europe and South America so it was global it did it was more severe in North America but it was still a global phenomenon
1: what do you say about the uh, I don't know if you I'm sure you followed this the uh, bird the animal die offs but especially the birds that we've seen dying here in the United States around the area of Arkansas, I believe, you have a flock of birds just flying and boom, they just fall right out of the sky. Have you looked into that?
2: Uh, well, I, I don't think that's necessarily natural. I think that's uh, <clears throat> um, use of uh, beam weapons that are mm-hmm. being done. That's the only thing that makes sense to me.
1: That's that's what other researchers say. Which which beams are you talking about, Harp or some other technology?
2: Well, I think it would be like microwave beam weapons. Uh, HARP, um, this is not necessarily working in the microwave range. Uh, right. But um, uh, I think they're space-based weapons. Uh, they have platforms there. Uh, uses uh, phase conjugation uh, technology. I discussed this <clears throat> both in uh, my book, uh, decoding the message of the pulsars, and also in uh, the book on anti gravity, uh, secrets of anti gravity propulsion. Um, <clears throat> it's the same technology that can be used for lifting spacecraft in the air, um, but you can also use it as a directed energy beam weapon, too.
1: Hmm. That just uh, for some some reason, the, the name Dr. Judy Wood comes to mind, um, and what we saw at the uh, 9 uh, 11 seeing all those cars that, you know, some of them levitated and flipped.
2: Hmm. Yes, I think that this is the kind of thing that could have been used. Uh, and you find it, it's it seems that it became, the building turned to dust uh, just as it was starting to lean, uh, when it was starting to fall from the explosions at different levels of the those thermite explosions or whatever those charges were planted, you, you saw the building start to lean and then it turned to dust in midair. <clears throat> it's almost like they didn't want to fall on other buildings, so they fired this weapon on it.
1: To avoid collateral damage. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Pulsars, ever since we spoke, I just think of, you know, how is this possible? But, but do you in your book, Decoding the Message of the Pulsars, you show that pulsars are distributed in the sky in a non-random fashion often marking key galactic locations. I'm just reading a little excerpt from your book. Often marking key galactic locations and that their signals are of intelligent origin. Using extensive scientific data to corroborate this theory, you present evidence of unusual geometric alignments among pulsars and intriguing pulse-period relationships, equally compelling the message. Uh, Mm. This to me, how do you decode this? Is it almost as decoding... Morse code. How do you decode the message of the pulsars?
2: Uh, well, first of all, the uh, the, loca- the locations of certain key pulsars um, are pointing out with uh, using geometry, for example, the location of our galactic center. Um, like, for example, the millisecond pulsar, which uh, is the, pretty much the fastest pulsar in the sky, with the exception of one other um, is exactly one radian from the galactic center and a radian that's a geometrical uh, um, angle that um, would not be naturally shown it's an indication of a civilization to understand geometrical relations to show that Uh, so part of the message is showing the the center of the galaxy and then Using uh, they've made this pulsar very special. Not only is it uh, the almost the fastest in the galaxy; it's pulsing, but also it's it puts out optical flashes in addition to radio flashes. It has what's called giant pulses, Um, a lot of different things like this, which it shares with the Vela pulsar and the Crab pulsar, which are Uh, among the closest to us. Um, The Vela pulsar is uh, the brightest in in the sky. And the uh, crab pulsar is the most powerful, has the most powerful pulses of all the pulsars in the sky. And if you study the positions of those pulsars, and plus the fact that they're marking supernova remnants, uh, and if you study that carefully, you realize that the explosions of those supernova remnants occurred at the time this galactic superwave was passing by us about 14,000 years ago. Um, so it's like they were—they're calling attention to an event that's traveling away from the center of the galaxy at the speed of light. And so that's basically the message: is that they're. Calling our attention to the, the superwave phenomenon, uh, and in fact, it was in in um, my realizing of that that it helped me to understand the superwave concept.
0: Because
2: sure. um, at that point, I had found that um, there was a uh, an indication in ancient myth of uh, outburst from the center of the galaxy but I hadn't quite made the connection that that had actually traveled all the way to us and caused effects on the Earth. And it was only after seeing that message in the pulsars of this uh, triggering of supernova explosions near us uh, that allowed me to make that connection and form the
1: theory. So essentially you're saying these are extraterrestrial bee guns that are warning us about a past galactic core explosion disaster that could recur in the near future. If they're warning us and we don't have the ability to to leave our planet and preserve the human race, that we know of. we all, We hmm. hear about the secret space program and what they're doing elsewhere. But for what we know, what is that message? How is that message useful to us that are quote-unquote stuck here?
2: Well, uh, first of all, it helps us to realize that the phenomenon exists because, mm. uh, <clears throat> before I wrote about this for my PhD dissertation, um, none of the astronomers had the, the slightest idea that this goes on, that they were aware of galactic core explosions. Um, but they thought they occur very infrequently. And in, even if they did occur, well, they believed they occurred in our galaxy as well, but that, if they did occur, that the cosmic rays would not reach us, which was uh, incorrect. Um, there's a lot of evidence that shows that the that cosmic rays do travel regularly out and they're not stopped by anything. Uh, so um, by knowing this... Um, at least we, we can deal with the situation, know what's hitting us. Can you imagine something like this happening and the astronomers don't even know where to start to interpret it? Uh, you know, first uh, concept of what they might think is well, maybe it was a supernova explosion near us. Um, so, um, how would you deal with that, you know, once it, it, it began? Uh, personally, I, I feel that um, the most effective uh, defense is prayer. Uh, I, I believe that uh, enough people focusing and praying on uh, averting the, the catastrophe, diverting the cosmic rays. Um, if you get enough people doing that, um, that you the could, power of intention, right. And, but, uh, as very, at a very spiritual level, uh, would be able to deflect the cosmic rays. And I think that's why all the major religions, um, talk about the end times, um, because this is the answer. How to, um, to, for humanity to save itself is to reach out to the divine, um, and in fact, it's the one event that brings all humanity together at the same time on the planet. Um, for example, uh, during the World Trade Center, uh, where the, the Twin Towers were falling, uh, they did studies with uh, these, uh, what they call these eggs. They were uh, random number
1: generators. Uh, distributed oh, the, Princeton, the Princeton eggs.
2: Right. And they found that during the three days around that event, um, the eggs were behaving non randomly. It's almost like the human consciousness that was focused on this one event was having psychokinetic effects all over the earth. Um, and if you talk to people, you know, how did they feel during that the three days after that event? Um, they'll probably tell you that it was a very detached feeling of a sort of unreality. Um, so uh, uh, just giving that as an example, um, imagine something much more uh, serious happening like the, of this sort. Uh, I believe that um, it's possible that uh, we could actually cause a change with enough people
1: You know, I I sound like a, absolutely, I think the power intention is is crucial but I always sound like a broken record when I talk about the project from Iron Mountain when when Kennedy was giving the report that communism would not last forever and that we needed a, a threat over our heads all the time to keep the economy going, a state of war and after that we had terrorism and when terrorism is no longer being bought by anybody, and I think that's the case right now, in my opinion, then mm. we'll see a celestial object or a global cataclysm, and after that, a an alien invasion to finally unite the world. This all sounds like science fiction, Paul, but this is a report given to President Kennedy. What's your mm. take on this? Do you think we're entering that phase where, and I want to touch for a moment, you, you may have looked at this comet Elenin, have you looked into this? Uh,
2: not really. I've just, you know, people have uh, asked me about it and I say, well, the comets are not my area. Um, my only, uh, from, from what I gather, uh, there, some people are claiming that it's having effects on uh, the Earth even at this point where it's uh, not that close. I mean, it's. I guess they say it's within the solar system. Um, I would say for something of that sort to have effects on the Earth, it would have to be a, like a neutron star or a, um, a white dwarf, in other words, to have a mass at least about the same as the sun. And there's no indications that it's either of those things, because if it was, it would be putting out huge amounts of gamma ray, X-ray radiation, and we don't see that. We wouldn't normally see that if it was. So, if it's just a regular comet, I don't see how that can have an effect on the Earth at, at this point.
1: some Some say that a brown dwarf may be behind it, and we can't yet see it, but it's it's uh, it's very large. And could that have an effect if that were the case? Uh, okay. well,
2: brown dwarf uh, could be like the size of Jupiter, or, right? Uh, or ten times the size of Jupiter. Um. still um, I don't know, what kind of effects are they seeing? Uh,
1: the- well, let's start with the earthquakes. Let's start with the and I know we have tornadoes and hurricanes all the time, but um, you know, we have seen a preponderance of earthquakes in the past I would just say 12 months, unlike mm-hmm. uh, we have seen in previous years.
2: Yeah. Um, I would only say that you know that it's a coincidence.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I, I would ascribe the rise in earthquakes to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, probably to increase of stress uh, on the Earth could be gravity waves from the galactic center, for that matter,
1: um, or even fracking that's taking place all over the place. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Uh, it's interesting that the Japanese earthquake uh, occurred just six months before 9/11. Huh?
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. It, That's exactly makes you right.
2: What's going on here?
1: And, you know, I've said it a couple of times, but I, I know a doctor, uh, a Czechoslovakian doctor who who lives in Japan. She has a friend who works at a navy base there, and she said that two days before the earthquake, the friend said to her. You know, I don't know why, but uh, the Navy base is vacating. All, all these ships are just going north. And they're leaving at a very fast pace, and we don't know why. We've never seen that happen. So, yes, it it's strange. And what's your take on the radiation that's, that's supposedly just, uh, going around the, the, the planet from Fukushima?
2: Uh, I haven't been following that. Uh, I'd assumed that... Uh wasn't at that high a level by the time it reached the US, right?
1: Well, it it keeps pouring out and there are so many reports I hear that people in Japan, some of them are not being allowed to to monitor. And this in the United States, when about a week or two after Fukushima, they started reducing uh, not reducing, but the, the the radiation meter meters they have in most cities, they started making the 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 alarms go way higher in other words if they were detecting something it was hmm. not being t- triggered but that's you know oh. i can't confirm that but we blame a lot on our sun uh, paul bad choice of semantics blame has a negative connotation we attribute a lot to our sun or, or, but could other forces outside our solar system have an effect right here on the planet earth and and our solar o- and our own solar system I ask you this question based on an article you have posted on your blog. Distant universe contributes more infrared radiation to total background supports tired light models. Please explain.
2: Uh, this was on the subquantum kinetics blog. Yes.
1: Superwave blog. Subquantum kinetics uh, blog. It's the very first uh, blog entry.
2: Ah, uh, okay. Let me just see. That was probably uh, something somebody posted. And I. And uh, let's see if I they can find it here.
0: So, so quantum kinetics.
1: I guess what I'm saying is, do we have a lot of uh, responsible energy affecting us here more than our sun?
2: Well, um, not really, as far as uh, this light from stars goes. That's very minor, but. Um, uh, we do have cosmic rays coming from other galaxies showering us. And that's the cosmic ray background radiation, um, the uh, particle radiation, uh, which we're continually exposed to. Um, so, you know, that's something we put up with uh, normally. Um Then there's also gravity waves. I've suggested that um, the the, the tsunami that occurred in 2004 uh, yeah, could have been triggered by a a gravity wave uh, associated with a uh, gamma-ray burst. That was uh, the first time we observed a gamma-ray burst coming from a source within our galaxy. And it was uh, interesting that um, this uh, tsunami, this um, earthquake that created this, occurred um, just a couple days before the burst arrived. Um, And this was the strongest burst they'd they'd ever seen in all the 30 years that they were looking. And uh, then it was also the strongest earthquake that they'd had in 30 years or more. So it, it's uh, difficult to pass it off as just coincidence. And it makes you wonder could the uh, gravity wave, uh, could there have been a gravity wave associated with the burst? And could this have caused enough stress on the earth to trigger the quake? So.
1: And is it interesting that 400 members of a tribe climbed a mountain? 48 hours before, and only one person from the tribe died because it was a paraplegic person who was not mobile. But uh,
2: That's interesting. I hadn't heard that story.
1: Yes, and uh, most people, doctors and professionals with cell phones and cars, they were caught in the middle. And these 400 Mm -hmm. people that we in the West may refer to uh, as soulless, backward-thinking people, all of a sudden they conquered nature. What do you think happened there? Do they have a, a sixth sense that we lost or maybe they were watching and observing animals?
2: Um well, I you know, I think I've had um experiences myself of having dreams of things that happen uh, days if not uh some case years in the future. Mm-hmm. Um if uh, people record their dreams, they, many people find that uh, they have precognitive dreams. Um, so it, it is something that um, it seems that our unconscious is um, tuned into things, uh, possibly even Um For example, you're familiar with um, the uh, what they call quantum interconnectedness, where they do experiments where they, uh, on particles that are coming in close proximity, and then they separate them over great distances. And they find if the, the spin of one is measured in a certain direction, that the spin of the other will be in exactly the opposite direction. And it's almost like um, the, the other one knew uh, how the spin of the first one was measured to properly orient itself. Um, it's almost like that they are bound, even though they are uh, they might be in, uh, in one experiment. I think they separated by uh, 10 or 20 kilometers, and the information was communicated at tens of thousands times the speed of light. So it's sort of like there's this uh, superluminal uh, con- connection in, in this case. And, and you, it makes you wonder, could the mind... Uh, Develop super uh, communications with uh, things happening in the, in the environment um, to inform us of a danger, for example, uh, ahead of time. And so maybe this tribe, um, they are more in touch with their, their unconscious and uh, able to get information that would, in this case, save their life. Same.
1: And we see the dependence that we have uh, on technology these days. We need a calculator to do everything. We need a, a cell phone, we need a computer. And these people just uh, perhaps, and i even I've even seen uh, studies of um, uh, telepathy being mm-hmm. used in certain tribes in the Middle East where they are traveling in the desert, and they have a scientist with them. They send a message to the receiver on the other side, many miles away and they get it. Apparently, this has been lost, or the dependence that we have on technology has made us more dependent on on this, as opposed to the, the abilities that we had before that are now, dare we say, dormant.
2: Yeah, in fact, uh, it also brings to mind remote viewing. Right. Uh, I was at a conference uh, just a few months ago where Joe McMonagall spoke. He's Great. was was one of the leading was one of the leading uh, remote viewers and the, the CIA was using in their experiments. And uh, he said that basically everyone has this ability to remote view. It's just that certain people uh, can do it better than others. Exactly. But it's something we all have and probably can develop um, with a little practice too. You know, and, and a lot of people have it. They've never tried test of themselves to find out how good they are. Um, so it's a question of uh, if one is interested to find out, and maybe find out that you're very good at
1: it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, remote viewing is an excellent uh, modality. And uh, I did take a course, and I did learn something, that our subconscious mind is the first trigger. That's why you have a, a pen, and you put the first thing that comes to mind, and you start you know, writing this uh, gibberish, and then all of a sudden, your, what is it, your right brain takes over and tries to find logic. So it's that first trigger or spark, the one that seems to be the real uh, uh, information, if you will.
2: Yeah. I think that the uh, the mind has the ability to create these superluminal connections um, at will by sort of like we can send out these connections. Uh, connective um, beams in in a way, the way you could think of it. Um, Whereas nature, like with particle experiments, it depends on the particles coming into close proximity first to to develop the bond. I think that in the case of the human mind, we can even develop these bonds, um, even if we're distant from that spot. Uh, In other words, it doesn't take initial close proximity to do it just takes intention and we can sort of send out our feelers to that point. Um, I've written a, uh, a paper in a book that Urban uh, Laszlo is publishing where he, uh, several books now, he's been interested in this idea of quantum interconnectedness. And um, I, I propose a theory of how this happens. Um, it's basically the idea that um, all uh, matter in the universe, uh, the particles are actually pulsating radially. And if you think of like a proton, yep. it's actually uh, moving in and out. Um, whereas physicists acknowledge that it, it, it does spin, it does have the property of spin, and they, they talk about the, the, the idea of the, the uh, particles uh, also precessing, it's called more precession. Um, These were actually, um, these behaviors were um, viewed by uh, psychics back before they were discovered. Uh, In 1895, um, Besant and Ledbetter, Annie Besant was a founder of the Theosophical Society, Um, they wrote about their research in which they uh, uh, did psychic investigations of the subatomic level. And they found these these um, characteristics of the particles, and one of them was this radial pulsation, which um, hadn't been discovered after. Uh, and I, I've proposed that um, this could explain uh, quantum interconnectedness, because if you if you have the uh, these particles, they're um, basically pulsating and sending out the equivalent of what we would call Tesla waves. Uh, Tesla wave is a uh, longitudinal oscillation, um, and uh, and when you get that where uh, two two particles near each other sending out these uh, radial oscillations, they can form a uh, a bond, a, a tunnel-like bond between them, which um, can hold can hold its intensity even if they're separated. And actually, be strong enough to actually uh, create forces on them at at a great distance, even though they're separated by a great distance.
1: I'm not sure if you've seen uh, some headlines that came out a few weeks ago, where uh, Russian two Russian scientists found that the sun is transmuting carbon twelve into carbon seven. Carbon twelve. Is six protons, six electrons, and six neutrons. There you go, six, six, six. And mm-hmm. carbon seven is a crystal, so they call it ascenium, uh, a new mineral called ascenium. Have you mm-hmm. have you looked into that?
2: Uh, so okay, so carbon seven would be what? Six uh, protons and one neutron. Exactly. Oh, first time I hear about this.
1: So that brings me to the 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 notion that our our DNA operates like miniature laser beams beams and if that's the case does the sun in your opinion have any transmuting effects on our dna mm-hmm. i don't know so something to think about <laughs> it's, a, it's a deep question isn't it mm-hmm. but uh, going back to the 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 words that you coined subquantum kinetics mm. what's new in that world of subquantum kinetics and for those who may not be familiar with with this can you define Subquantum kinetics, and give us some updates.
2: Well, um, first of all, it's uh, an ether theory that proposes the existence of an ether uh, filling all of space, and that uh, all of matter and energy are basically waves in the ether. Um, so, if you think, that, in other words, that what, what, what your body is not physically real, all it is is a wave in the ether. The real substance is the ether. Which we can't directly see because the etherons are so small. Um, we, as physical beings, can only see waves in the ether, you know, uh, because they scatter light and they create forces on us. Um, but the truth is, if you analyze what we, as physical beings, and what the furniture in our room is, it's really ether that is wavy ether, you see. And what I've developed is a, um, a, a ether theory Is um, first of all, it's uh, different from the previous ether theories um, in that it proposes an ether that's in flux. And it's um, more similar to what Heraclitus was talking about, um, that there's a continual um, um, change going on that maintains... Uh, all of what we see—it's uh, it's con- a, a continual activity. And these are ideas that Alfred North Whitehead was, uh, was talking about, uh, Henri Bergson, uh, all the what are called process philosophers. That is the idea that there is activity at the basis of, of physical reality. So. Um, If you think of this uh, in terms of a a computer program, let's say generating uh, uh, patterns, um, I've developed the the script, the computer script, basically, that um, would generate the physical universe. Um, You could think of it as unified field theory. Um, And we've done some computer simulations with this. It's called Model G. Uh, and it uh, the, the computer simulations were done uh, just uh, this year and and last year Matt Pulver helped me do this uh, he was able to perform them on his laptop um, and it's basically confirmed all the predictions that I was making in my papers uh, published over the last 30 years um, and uh, it it uh, at that time, you know, I, I could only sort of imagine this stuff in my head. I didn't have the computer tech uh, software to actually do the simulations. And um, so what you find is that the uh, wave, wave patterns that come out of this ether, they're, they're created by uh, zero point fluctuations in the ether. Where the, in other words, if you picture the ether as like a choppy sea, um, it's continually uh, generating these uh, fluctuations, these uh, energy pulses. You can think of electric energy pulses. And if a, an electric energy pulse gets large enough, it's able to nucleate a subatomic particle like a neutron, for example. And we've been able to, to model this happening. Um, and... Uh, the wave pattern that the sub-quantum kinetics predicts that emerges, uh, turns out it uh, fits very closely to what they actually observe with particle scattering experiments, what they observe for the field pattern in the nucleon. In other words, the, the key characteristics that they observe were predicted by sub-quantum kinetics.
1: And, uh, Paul, we have to take a one and only break, but... I'm going to leave a cliffhanger here because the simulation of this model G reaction also states, and you say that the story of Atlantis is an allegorical story describing the creation of matter. And this is one of the things you learn by by doing this. And also, uh, you're saying that we hear that there's a massive black hole in the center of the galaxy, but you seem to differ. You're saying that there's no black hole it's in the center of the galaxy all of this when we come back we also have plenty of questions from our audience so far we haven't been disconnected folks and I don't didn't even want to say it not to jinx it but we have so mm-hmm. much more in part two tell us Paul how do people get in touch with your work buy, buy all your great books visit your website etc uh,
2: well uh, one website is etheric.com Uh at- Etheric.com, E-T-H-E-R-I-C dot com, and I discuss some of my work there, and also there's uh, links to a place you can buy the books and uh, lecture, download lectures, things like this. Um, also, another website is uh, of the Starburst Foundation, which is a research institute I'm affiliated with where I do a lot of my research. And uh, that website is starburstfound.org. Starburst, S-T-A-R-B-U-R-S-T-F-O-U-N-D.org.
1: Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Dr. Paul Laviolette and so much more to discuss in segment two. This is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest, in our members section if you're not a member just go to our website veritasradio.com and click on this subscribe link to listen to the rest we'll take a short intermission listen to some music and i'll see you in the member section enjoy
0: This is Robert Bouval and you're listening to the Veritas show.